0: We are all about charity, and today's shout-out is for NZPC, Alteodoa New Zealand Sex Workers Collective. They are a New Zealand-wide organisation which is run by sex workers for sex workers. They advocate for the rights, safety, health, and well-being of all sex workers. They're a grassroots organisation, not-for-profit, and they provide information and services for people who are doing sex work or thinking about doing sex work. Check them out at nzpc.org.nz They are Dame Catherine's shout out of choice today
1: Sex, the final frontier These are the voyages of the speculative interdimensional vehicle Sex in Space Its mission, to explore new points of view To seek out fresh opinions To boldly go where so many have gone before and still somehow managed to totally miss the point. Subscribe to Sex in Space, wherever quality podcasts are found.
0: Hello, I'm Tim. Hello, I am Jess. And welcome to another episode of Sex in Space. This is a mega project that explores sex across all of its infinite dimensions.
2: And this is where we turn the awkward into the straightforward and try and have some fun while doing it.
0: Yes, we try.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we do try. Um, today I've got for you an incredible interview that I did with um, Dame Catherine Healy. So this this um, interview was recorded uh, during lockdown right at the height at the beginning of COVID. Eh? Um, that's important to note because it was over Zoom so yep. it had to be a remote interview. Um, but we were so lucky to get to get some time with um, Dame Catherine Healy because they spearheaded the decriminalisation of sex work in New Zealand. So Dame Catherine Healy is the National Coordinator and founding member of the NZPC, the New Zealand Prostitutes Collective, the only sex workers union in New Zealand, and they're a world-renowned speaker, researcher and advocate for sex workers' rights. Um, This is such a juicy podcast, so much around the history of sex work and... Um, just their personal experience, and it was a real honour to get a window into that world um, from, yeah, just someone with uh, so much knowledge and mana. So I really hope that you enjoy.
1: And now, the interview. Well,
3: let's
4: fire away then.
2: Yeah, yeah. So thank you so much for your time. I just want to, you know, I know that as I was researching you, I, I realized that you'd spoken in the House of Commons, and I think um, when I first reached out to you, I didn't realize quite how important a woman I was speaking to, <laughs> and now I know that you're this internationally renowned um, speaker. Yeah, it's it's quite astonishing. So thank you for taking the time. Is all I mean to
3: say.
4: Thank you, and it's a pleasure um, to speak to someone with you know, such a great agenda.
3: Mm,
2: yeah, sex and space is certainly a, an interesting space. It's still evolving, you know, and um, iterating. And, and you coming into it is, um, is building a whole other sort of Lego room, <laughs> I would say, to what we are. But I guess I, I want to start first with asking you, Catherine, um, yeah, what, what has brought you to where you are now? Yeah, what's brought you to the work that you do now? What is that work, first of all, I guess?
4: Sure. Um, My role with NZPC, the New Zealand Prostitutes Collective, is to coordinate it around the country, but that means um, everything that happens, really. Like, there isn't much delineation in between our roles. So, as an organisation, many of us um, play a national kind of role and Mm -hmm. respond so, for example, um, we talk all talk with sex workers on a daily basis about whatever reality situations are there. Um, we're funded by the Ministry of Health to run a sexual and reproductive health programme throughout the sex industry, and that came out of our very early years in, um, when we formed in 19... 19- Eighty-seven, they contracted with us in 1988 to run the HIV awareness program. And, you know, as a group of sex workers, we knew exactly what our peers involved in sex work needed. And so we evolved over time to establish community centres and grew um, a political awareness around, you know, problems that we had, Um, with our lives as sex workers as well as um, dreams, you know, that we could um, live stigma-free lives. So we pushed um, on many fronts, but that's a bit of a long description of what I do. Um, I hope people understand inside of that um, there's, uh, you know, something that's organised in our approach to sex workers and responsive to what the country needs.
2: And you, so you yourself identify as a sex worker?
4: I do. Um, historically, I worked. Um, I'm no longer a sex worker, um, but I certainly worked for a number of years. And what brought me to that um, was probably a series of accidents, really. I um, trained to be a teacher and simultaneously went to Wellington teachers college as well as Victoria University and graduated from both and taught for nine years and teachers of course get long holidays and so I'd explore the world you know on our doorstep and um, as well as you know further afield and countries like um, Southeast, Southeast Asian countries and um, India and Nepal and I'd have these fabulous holidays and come back Um, with enormous credit card bills. (laughs) (laughs) I went out looking for a job to supplement my teaching for a Friday night, Saturday night kind of thing, and that's how I discovered um, the massage parlour branch of the sex industry and was hired initially as a um, receptionist to greet and meet and facilitate introductions between the clients and the women at the time who worked in the massage parlour scene. And I became a masseuse so-called, which was just a code name for a sex worker and decided to move on from teaching and become a full-time sex worker.
2: Wow. So you're talking about there is, I know you mentioned um, massage parlour as one branch of sex work. And I'm sure for people listening, they might not have a very clear idea of what you mean when you say sex work. I know that it can be quite a broad a broad brush definition. How would you define sex work? What is, what is your words around that?
4: Well, it was interesting because when I started, we just had the old words that are quite stigmatising. And sure, we've still got um, the word in our name as an organisation, so you know, we were spoken about as prostitutes and the work was spoken about as prostitution. So the preference today and for some time has been to refer to us as sex workers and to talk about the work as sex work. Mm-hmm. So um, broadly, um, too, that it's more encompassing. Like, obviously, there are, sex workers who have contact with clients, there are dancers who don't um, necessarily, who are performers. And the term itself is, is all-encompassing of people who use and um, use sexual um, activity or titillation as a means to make money. So sex work seems to fit um, more categories of people.
3: Mm, okay,
2: and so that that might involve touching. It might involve not touching. I guess it could also probably involve um distance connections too. Hey, especially now, I mean, in the situation we're in, uh, in lockdown under COVID, I imagine that that sex work via camera has increased as well. Is that, do you
4: include that in your definition of, of, the, of the you represent? Yes. yes. and I'm showing my age. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> very grand when I forget that. Um, the importance of, um, you know, things like camcording and Mm -hmm. so on. I mean, bizarrely, in 1988, um, there was telephone sex, and that was um, outlawed by something called the, um, I think it was the um, Telecom Communications Act, and you weren't allowed to speak in a sexual manner on the telephone. Mm. And so those telephone lines, which were quite innovative, Had to go offshore and find host companies and and countries near to us, but um, not inside the New Zealand borders. Bizarre as it seems, you know, how puritanical.
2: (laughs) That's amazing. The old telephone workers. I think I still kind of remember the ads with sort of a picture of a high heeled shoe and a long cord. You know,
4: (laughs) and poor, poor, poor telecom having having to. Agitate, I imagine, that's what happened. Because I remember speaking about it and saying, Well, why would they want to get away with the safest sex possible? You know, in the time of HIV, introducing this mad act. I don't know if it's still on the statute books, it possibly is. <laughs> yeah. So don't talk dirty on the telephone. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, I mean, and now all our data's being collected anyway, so if <laughs> every- <laughs> everybody's um everybody's dirty pictures are dirty pictures um are being collected somewhere i i guess um you i i've read about you Catherine, and i and i think from my readings i heard something like you worked in the industry for seven or eight years is that true
4: yeah for seven seven years and most of that time was spent um with a really strong bunch of um sex workers who became some of the founding members of the NZPC. So the idea was hatched um, in a an era when HIV loomed large. The police also um, had a lot to do with our lives, against our will. And, you know, we were very vulnerable to lots of things um, shifting around. We didn't feel that we had much control over our working lives so, yeah, the massage um, scene, so-called, um, is practically no longer. I mean, everyone now, um, say, you will know, we'll talk about working and, and, you know, they'll talk about the brothels, um, of course, words that we couldn't use in those days because it was against the law to keep a brothel or live on the earnings of a prostitute or um, ask for money for sex. And none of those things are any are illegal any longer for adult sex workers.
2: And so, the can you paint a little picture for me then, if that, if that world feels like it's disappeared, what did that world feel like? What were the best things about it, you know? Um, yeah, what what was that life like? I mean, you talked a little bit about the police, but what, what did it feel like at that time?
4: Well, at that time, um, there were, you know, the bulk of the sex industry, sex workers worked inside massage parlours or were street-based sex workers and those were the two avenues. There were a few escort agencies which um, operated off a single telephone line Mm -hmm. that somebody controlled and there were drivers who would drive you out to places but um, in the main there was an attempt to keep everyone contained and controlled um, inside the massage parlour scene and there was a thing called the Massage Parlours Act, which outlawed anything to do with prostitution, so-called. So if anyone was caught, and sometimes that happened, you know, the police would come in and pretend to be clients and set people up and get them to ask for money for sex and then snap, you'd be charged with soliciting. And if you were charged and convicted, you weren't allowed to work in that branch of... Um, the sex industry, and that meant um, your choices were diminished. Um, Some people, of course, chose to be street-based sex workers and others were um, forced out of the indoor part of the sex industry into street-based sex work. So, you know, there was um, a great deal of camaraderie. I guess. Um, People worked for the most part, From seven at night until three a.m., there were these kind of rigid shifts, and then you'd come out of your massage parlor at three in the morning. There would be these underground clubs that you would all meet up in, and you know, kind of an awareness of other people who were sex workers. Um, And of course, you know, the street-based sex workers were a really cohesive part of the population, and many of them were. Um, Whakawahine and you know would perform together in some of the big clubs um, as well as you know work um, meeting clients through their street based connections Um, so yeah it was it was it's nice to reflect but at the same time you know we were cut off from many um, support systems officially it wasn't a safe space, you know, if you had something go wrong, it wasn't going to be an option necessarily to reach out to the police and say, hey, I'm a sex worker, can you um, follow through on this? You know, I've been, something's happened to me. You know, like that just wasn't really what you wanted to do unless it was extreme and there wasn't much choice. Mm. Um, The police would... Come round um, and visit all of the massage parlors and record the names of the mostly women who were working there, and those names were were recorded on a database. And that was a you know that you, you sat there as if you were and and were monitored as if you were a criminal, and you know that was tremendously um, put people at at a great disadvantage. You know if you. For example, had another job, you worried that that information could come out. You know that you're also a sex worker and that the police held you on a database. Mm. So, you know, there were lots of problems. We couldn't explicitly share information about um, sex work related activities because um, we weren't meant to be. <laughs> um, having any sex work related activities in massage parlours and of course massage parlours, escort agencies, um, all of that sphere of indoor sex work was simply, you know, they weren't built on having nice chats or escorts to dinner. Um, It was all around having the exchange of money for sex. Mm And, you know, all those strategies that you needed as a sex worker, it was very difficult to share and, you know, such practical information. Um, As water-based lubricant, I remember being absolutely puzzled, you know, about water-based lubricant and nobody filled me in as the dopey receptionist about what the little tubes I'd come across when I'd be switching the lights off at night and I'd be thinking, why have they got KY gel? (laughs) What's going on here? I mean, it was really hit and miss. Um, People would huddle together when a new person would start in a massage parlour. Someone would be pulled aside to explain what the nature of the work was. It was very bad. Um, Very bad. You know, hit and miss. Um, That's not to say that bad things happened. It was just to say that things could be improved greatly in terms of educative information so to you know contrast that today with sex workers who are referred to our organization Mm -hmm. confidently by operators of brothels who will also you know request um, condoms explicitly we used to distribute condoms even when it was illegal but they'd ring up on the telephone the landline and say things like, can, I, can you drop off some little things to me? Too, too afraid to say the words. Wow. And Condom.
2: So, so does NZPC supply, uh, they fund the Ministry of Health to supply those yes. tools? Okay, so that's, that includes condoms, that includes
4: lube. Massive. massive. We, we do a massive um, safe sex distribution. So it includes, you know, practical information about working as a sex worker if you think about if you're thinking about becoming a sex worker where the organization your approach and you might discover that um you don't actually want to be a sex worker after we mm. um, walk you through it or you know you may well think oh this sounds like me um so but if I, know,
3: if I
2: am i'm kind of interested because i'm i'm like okay so what if i do think oh you know what i'm not earning very much I, you know, I, I really would like to be able to earn a bit more so that I could save for my first home. That's like a genuine story for me. So if I do come to you and I go, hey, I'm thinking about entering the sex work industry, what do you say to someone like me?
4: Um, well, I would um, not patronise you. I'd assume that you would have given it some thought. Mm. Um, but I don't think people romp in um, and think it's all going to be like Julia Roberts found in Pretty Woman. Um, but, um, you know, if <laughs> there are, you know, things that we would talk about, I would make an assumption um, that you're familiar with condoms and safer sex products, but not too much of one. Um, so we'd pull out the dildos and um, we'd test some condoms and play around a bit, you know, on a practical level, just to see that the competency there um, is there. Mm. Um, we'd talk a bit about um, access to sexual health services and, you know, the importance of having regular checkups. Um, and you know, you know, if there was already already an established relationship, um, in terms of. Secondary reproductive health barriers, you know, like um, condoms are one thing to use as a cisgendered woman, um, but you know, with a male client. But the, you know, there are other things as well. We talk about dental dams, you know. We'd be familiar with all the safe sex products. Um, parallel to that, there would be discussions about how to manage. You know, what kind of sex work would you be involved in? What what would your preference Um, would you prefer to work with other sex workers which is something that we'd probably recommend because it gives you that peer support Um, would you prefer to work in a managed um, brothel and then we talk about the kinds of ways and some of the behaviors that can come up in that setting Um, some managers are better than others and some might be slightly um, more demanding, and so we talk about ways in which to make sure that your know is understood, um, mm-hmm. that you're not going to um, acquiesce to any kind of pressure that you're going to feel um, that you're able to um, hold your own space really important. We talk about the intimate nature of um, working with clients and mm-hmm. um, once again you know the importance of knowing your own space and we talk about some of the strategies um the particular sex acts you know the kinds of things that may come up as requests so very very precise detailed stuff Mm -hmm. that possibly you wouldn't get anywhere else um in any other health setting we don't see ourselves as being limited by health we see ourselves as been broad-based, we're concerned about the rights of sex workers right across the spectrum. Um, whatever hurts a sex worker impacts on the sex worker or works well with the sex worker is, is of interest to us.
2: Mm-hmm. So all of that help you just described, which sounds extremely wraparound and very, very detailed, like you said, none of that existed for you when you entered the sex work industry?
4: I was so dopey. You know, I realised, you know, on, on the second night I was hauled up, you know, as a receptionist, I was hired to answer the telephone. And, I, I you know, the women were dressed in a really swish way. It was full glam, um, long gowns. It was a classic old house. It was in the inner city of Wellington. And, you know, I, I, they, they um, ran rings around me. I had no idea that they were sex workers. I had no idea. I thought, okay, they're doing massage and perhaps they're taking their tops off and they're doing it nude. Um, but it was very, you know, it had things like on the, there was a kind of schedule It had, you know, the clients could come in and book um, for things. So they could book a half hour massage. So it had 30 minutes massage and it was $30 or something. And then it had... You know 45 minutes 45 you know it was like this it just it had very little information Um i was hired and i just knew i didn't really kind of twig until the second night and a, a sex worker <laughs> told me off for letting someone in who was a straight a straight yeah, and a straight of course had a different con- connotation and i didn't realize that she was meaning he had no money he had no intention of paying her for sex. He was just literally there to have a massage. And, of course, the sex workers didn't get paid for massaging. They earned nothing, and they had to go through this tedious business of giving someone a massage. (laughs) And, of course, they'd be furious if I let in somebody who had no intention of being a client. So that's when I, I was you know, read the Riot Act and told what was really happening. But, you know, they couldn't really express what was happening because it was against the law to procure, to hire anyone um, into a brothel. You know, you weren't allowed to keep a brothel. So, essentially, that's kind of, yeah.
2: So, you must have seen enormous, you're talking about enormous changes then from when you first entered the industry to, you know, now. What are some of those I mean, you've been in touch with that industry the entire time because you move. is it true that you moved directly from the sex work industry into sex work advocacy? Is that
4: true? Well, yes, we formed the organisation in 1987 and, Mm -hmm. you know, it was very much a fish and chips sort of culture. We sat around, we ate, um, talked, you know, informally and about, you know, the need to change things. And, uh, you know, loud amongst that, um, of course, was the concern around HIV, but also the um, police involvement. You know, people would be entrapped and arrested and prosecuted. And that was really the most terrifying thing, you know, for people who didn't, you know, hadn't told anyone they were sex workers to have your name in the paper to be arrested for soliciting um, in a massage parlour. The fine wasn't um, huge, but the consequences were. So you know, you were publicly named and shamed,
3: Mm.
4: and you know, so that was a always a risk.
3: Mm. Um,
4: Plus, if things happened, you know, the police weren't there on side with you. They were not necessarily going to be available to support you. They were going to give you a lecture and say, "Well, if you're going to be a prostitute, what do you expect?" You know. So, you know, horrific kind of outcomes in that respect. If you experienced um, a a sexual assault, for example, it wouldn't be that you would want to report that necessarily to the police and have support. Um, I'm not saying all the police were like that. We certainly had people who saw the irony and the stupidity of the law as it was back then and were very supportive. Of change, but in the main, that you know, the whole law was poised um, to ensure that it was enforced, and it wasn't on the side of sex workers. Clients were allowed to pay for sex; sex workers um, weren't allowed to ask for money for sex. So the power dynamic um, was always there. You know, like potentially, um, you know, clients had that power, although sex workers had a lot of power in that. Setting, um I don't want to underplay that because um they, they managed and manipulated the clients into doing what they needed to be doing um and were very good at doing that. but if the rug was pulled and um there was an an entrapment um exercise, and a number of sex workers were pulled in, everyone became really skittish and scared.
3: Mm. So, did that mean that you could
2: never talk directly about um, the specific services that you were going to provide or that they wanted? Did there have to be sort of a whole layer of code in there?
4: Absolutely, a whole layer of code. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, really bizarre to yeah. think about it now, you know, but, you know, the importance of being able to have a frank conversation mm. um, simply couldn't um, without breaking a law or two. And you know the 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 people who were operating these places, the venues, sometimes they were arrested and were sent to prison. So the prison sentences could be up to um, five years. And you know that so that you know there was a great investment all around for everyone to have to toe the line and pretend. So when we started to come out, if you like, um, that made a lot of people quite nervous um, that, you know, that it was tricky and pushing through to, to get the HIV, to get people to accept condoms, um, to keep them in their brothels, I mean, in their massage parlours or escort agencies or their wallets and purses, um, as opposed to stashing them under the fridge or the bed or, you know, hiding them um it's been a huge change you know like it's it's it really stresses me when i go to other countries and for the most part sex work related activities um are in this dual criminalization model um some countries like canada and france have moved Um, to criminalising the clients as opposed to criminalising the sex workers. But, you know, the outcome's pretty much the same because the sex workers have to consider um, their clients and protect their clients from being discovered
3: Mm.
2: by the
4: police. And so it's not improved their lives at all.
2: Mm. I mean, it's quite a a dark picture that you're painting. And it's interesting to me that... um, that you wanted to stay in that work, which sounds quite personally dangerous to be doing with very little support. You know, what what was it that you, what kept you there? What what did you enjoy about that work?
4: Well, you see, I think it was sporadic, you know, like, so what, to, to, to just um, also give it some levity here. The money <laughs> was... And... and um, there were great times, um, not to not to say um, that it was always that intense as I've described. So you know, at the time when I was hired as a dopey um, teacher, um, coming in for a Friday night job, what I saw was this kind of the kind of glamorous and um, relaxed people. I didn't walk in at the end of a raid or at a time when they were upset. Um, So, you know, things would happen and then um, would settle down again and, you know, people would carry on working and things would get busy. The clients would be coming and going and there'd be a lot of merriment as well. Um, And a bad time was often couched. And it's still true today, you know, where people will reflect on a bad time at a bad time. For most sex workers, that's most commonly expressed as when they don't make any money, when there aren't any clients. As they, oh, it really sucked last night, you know, I didn't, or today, or whatever. Because there's a lot of daytime work, and you know, things bad for everyone.
3: Mm.
4: It's like that's the language. Yeah, Um, sure. sure. But for sure, I don't want to um, forget actually that very serious awful tragedies happen and to acknowledge um, the families who have lost people who have been working as sex workers Mm. and I would say that it's not the nature of sex work it's to do with a lot of the stigma um, and we're talking about violent men Mm. and violent men hurt um, people in all sorts of occupations and sex workers are um, a, a part of that. So m- people might not
2: understand um, what the actual legal change is. I mean, if you've if you've never come across sex work, if you've never, you know, done any sex work yourself, if you don't know any sex workers, you might might not know why or how things have changed in New Zealand. Can you describe the the legal shift? If there hasn't been a stigma shift, the legal shift
4: <laughs> that's happened. Um it was important, we realised very quickly on that sex workers needed to be supported um, so that you know there could be these education programs, you know that the health and safety um, needed to be supported. So um, because the work wasn't recognised or the the real nature of the work wasn't recognised, it made education really tricky. Um, in that context, and so the example of condoms being seized as evidence to prove that um, sex work-related activities had occurred, or prostitution had occurred, um, was a real barrier to good health for sex workers. So um, it was decided to recognise sex work and to improve the um, labour rights for sex workers. Some people might say, look, it's not, how can you possibly describe it as work? Um, You know, we should try and eliminate and do what the Swedes are doing and stop sex work. Well, in our experience, um, nobody's managed to stop sex work anywhere at any time in history. So we took the approach to make sure that sex workers had. Um, rights and had the right to work in safe environments and could use the same kind of law that's used for any other workplace environment to Mm -hmm. seek justice Um, so the the aims of the Prostitution Reform Act are built around protecting the rights and the safety, the health Mm -hmm. the well-being of sex workers Mm -hmm. and it allows for sex workers to have managers if they want. Um, And that allows for sex workers to work inside. You know, some people say, oh, why did we allow for pimps? You know, why have we allowed for brothel keepers? Because simply put, sex workers needed somewhere to work indoors. And often um, people can't afford to run their own place, nor do they want to. So they need a manager So you've got to allow for a brothel keeper in that regard, someone who can be held to account under good employment law like any other manager. Um, So it was a massive change, and we call it decriminalisation because essentially it involves removing laws off the statute books and getting rid of brothel keeping, living on the earnings, procuring... And soliciting and allowing sex workers just to get on, go to work, um, ask for money for sex. You know, the clients have always been allowed to ask for sex for money. That was never against the law, nor would we want it to be. So they're on an equal footing in that regard.
3: Um,
4: yeah, so it's a, it was a massive change and it's been looked at and evaluated by, I think, so many researchers. There's so much evidence to say that sex workers are better off under this Mm -hmm. um, kind of law. And, you know, there's stuff to iron out. We haven't um, made it perfect in in all respects, but um, certainly we're on the right path, I believe.
2: Yeah, congratulations on getting that reform through. That was 2003, is that right?
4: Yes, 2003.
3: Yeah. (laughs)
2: Yeah, I remember because I was 18 at the time and there was a hot debate among my friends, some of whom thought that, um, that uh, we were still calling it prostitution at that stage, I think, that prostitution was, um, that you couldn't be empowered as a prostitute or as a sex worker. Um, and others of us who were like, well, it's survival for some people. So I'm interested in where you sit on that, on that like probably slightly dated debate, but I'm interested how many people do come into sex work and seek it as survival work you know how many can choose to actually do other work um yeah do you have do you have an idea of that a feel for that
4: it's it's a very fraught debate Mm. and you know a really good question about you know how many people come in and um i you know like we that's one of the topics we talk about with people like if people are turning up and they're coming from um the perspective of needing a lot of money we're really clear about saying look there's lots of underemployment in the context of sex work and there are lots of sex workers who are hanging on by their fingernails you know like there isn't um a great deal of work for everyone all the time you can of course um, make quite good money but at other times you're going to be stressed and worried that there simply aren't enough clients to go around. Um, so, you know, people who talk about um, survival sex generally, you hear that in the context of people under the, you know, young people under the age of eighteen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a term that's generally used in that regard, where a young person may leave home or a home that has left it. Um, that that young person uh, quite vulnerable, you know. For various reasons, um, might be in a situation where, you know, they drift into sex work. It's not intentional. Mm.
3: Um,
4: and, you know, they're, they're, they've they got the cycle of needing somewhere to sleep, needing something to eat. Um, mm. it's, it's a very um, fraught situation. And often that's where you hear that terminology, survival sex. Okay. Um, we are certainly on the side of supporting all young people under the age of 18 to broaden their capacities. And, you know, like if there are young people who are working as sex workers, um, it's against the law for anyone to pay someone under the age of 18 or to hire them.
3: Mm
4: -hmm. So, you know, we put a lot of energy into supporting
3: Mm. to
4: try and make sure those young people are in situations that are safe and that would broaden their choice away from sex work mm. um but yeah um choosing to do sex work seems to be like rape you know raising a, a red flag some people might say it's no such thing you can't mm. um, do sex work it's it comes from the back of poverty and other sex workers will say, "Well, actually, you know." And I've heard um, people in countries like Thailand, the sex workers over there say, "Well, we use sex work to escape poverty. Mm. Um, not about poverty. We use it to escape poverty. Um, and we need rights, and we need labour rights. You know, like you get sex worker communities that are highly organised. Countries like um, India, Thailand, South Africa. Um, many of those sex workers are calling." for decriminalisation like we have here or a model similar um, so that their labour rights are recognised. Mm. And that debate, um, you know, whether they choose, whether they're forced, um, nobody should be forced by circumstance, mm. um, sex work, nobody should be forced um, by any third party into sex work. So, of mm. course, um, choice does feature.
2: Mm. And do you believe, um, I guess I'm interested too, because I can imagine part of that conversation is the idea that once you've done sex work, it's very difficult to transition out of it. Is it something that you've noticed? I mean, I, I assume that that's really not, because the work certainly would, <laughs> would um, still be client facing, would still um, require a lot of uh, personal communication skills and liaison, you know, as well as um, personal organizational skills. It's not that there's not
4: skills transfer but what yes. do you think it is that mediates? I think it's. I think it is the um, the other kind of you know that, that perception that you're so different. You've been a sex worker. You've because it's not as if it's held up and well regarded. It's still in um, hushed, you know. It's hushed up. I mean, it's interesting because I, I have noted um, since decriminalisation that stigma has reduced a lot. People do talk about it you know sex workers will say oh you know mum knows dad doesn't um and we've had sex workers come in with family members and you know and it all seems to be balanced and um you know this is what my daughter's doing and um, and I want to also point out we don't just work with women cisgendered women we work with men and um gender non-conforming trans people so yeah I think It's, um, we have some way to go. Um, but it's funny, like some people might say, well, look, you know, I didn't feel that crash hot when I was doing such and such a job and I did it because I needed to survive. Um, I got up every Monday morning and went and slogged somewhere and, um, I didn't earn a great deal of money and I didn't enjoy the abuse. I didn't enjoy the, um, you know being shouted at you know things that people forget happen in other occupations you know it's short sex work has got a special loading on it Um, and I think you know you're putting two complex issues together like um, sexuality and women's agency and people's agency around sex and Mm. um, the idea that they're going to have a lot of sexual partners, and the idea that there's going to be charging of money—you know, God help us—that's <laughs> a foreign behaviour.
2: <laughs> so this, uh, so I think what you're saying basically is that sex work is very similar to many other jobs. There are the same challenges of difficult bosses, of you know, um, of workplace disagreements, of you know, sometimes dreading it and sometimes loving it, <laughs> loving it and dragging yourself there. I think, um, yeah, I guess I'm interested too in in. You talked about the decriminalisation that's happened in New Zealand, but it sounds like there's still a process of destigmatisation that needs to happen alongside that. How, what's your answer? To that? How do you how do you propose we sort of start that? It's not in the law, is it?
4: <laughs> no, it's it's not in the law, and it's one of those important areas. I think um, we would like. There to be some acknowledgement of it because um, definitely stigma feeds into terrible things, um, you know, violence. I mean, I, I was reading just this week the outcome of a court case, an appeal where a sex worker had been murdered, and the person who had murdered her, the man who had murdered her, said that he didn't see her as a person, he saw her as meat he was a butcher by trade and so that's pretty compelling evidence that we need to be proactively doing something about stigma and making sure that you know we in, in, in legislation that that's reflected you know like um, we talk about hate crimes you know sex workers are a class of people. Um, sure, you can stop being a sex worker, but it doesn't necessarily stop someone thinking about you in a, a bad way. Mm. I was at the pictures once with um, my mother, and I, it was dark, and I couldn't see the person next to me. And we had to leave. My mother was unwell. We got up, and I remember this voice in the dark. I, you know, I said, "Excuse me, can we leave? Can you? Would you mind?" And um, he said, "I'll stand up for her, but I won't stand up for you." And had clearly recognised who I was, and you know, just creepy little things that um, happen. Where does that?
2: Where does the kind of? Um, yeah, where does where does that work start? Where do you think? I mean, I don't think it should just be on NZPC shoulders to <laughs> to be doing that work. Who else could be taking up this mantle? Do you think?
4: I think the Human Rights Commission, um, I think, you know, like we could extend some of the grounds of discrimination um, to include sexual behaviour. You know, maybe that's a nifty way to do it. Um, But I do, I would like to see explicitly, actually, that you can't discriminate against someone on the basis of their being a sex worker or having been a sex worker. And people do. I mean, there are discriminatory laws in this country you can't come to this country um, with the intention of being a sex worker wow so that that's a pretty discriminatory law
1: and now this
4: at Barbarella's, Two therapists compare their journeys. What's the weirdest thing you've ever done?
2: Well, for a dare, I once rode a giant maggot down the intestinal tract. Oh, no, or... no, I mean sexually. Oh. I domreft a sex spout between the egg beings of Maligna and the sentient chickens from the Uhura cluster just to see who came first. Yeah, and? It was a draw. You? Ah,
1: a Parvinian snout monkey had me use them as a strap on once. It's
2: child's play. I gave an enema to a chlismophiliac Veronic with four anuses.
4: It reminds me of the time I had to beat the Silocene High Priest with a Raigal Sea Cucumber.
2: Ever thought you'd end up at a place like
5: Barbarella's? Oh no, nothing as classy as this. <laughs> oh, news is on.
1: Welcome to Full Frontal Newsity, keeping you well astride the news cycle. I'm your host, Zingriti Flob. Leading tonight's stories, Galactic President Bodo Felcher III has been sprung visiting that renowned sexual therapy center in the Virgo constellation, Barbarellas. Let's go live to our roving ink slinger, Gretzka Ab Intra. What can you tell us, Gretzka?
5: Well, Zingrity, everyone's entitled to their privacy except if your name's Bodo Felcher, and you're already reeling from a series of damaging reports about the misuse of galactic union funds. We first got wind of this story when the following vid stream was leaked to us anonymously. We urge caution. Some of our viewers may find the content totally devoid of titillation. <laughs> If I pause the vid here, you may recognize the multicolored quiff of Felcher's third head protruding from beneath this mound of heaving protoplasm. We contacted the office of the president for a comment and received the following from his spokesbeing. Go, a syphilitic Venusian pound, you vestigial preliterate fondlers. We suspect the president was being ironic. Zingriti.
1: Thanks, Gretz. Physically impressive, but hardly worthy of the office of president. We'll be following this story until it stops being interesting. Next, on Full Frontal, 21 Railgun Salute shoots down visiting dignitaries. Awkward. More after this.
3: your pleasure is our business.
1: And now, to more weapons-grade content.
2: Sex and Space was started because of this massive gap we have, you know, which has been really l- hugely documented by research that, um, that you know, kids are, are going to porn to try and understand what sex is, that we don't, we're not having conversations about genders, we're not having conversations about bodies, and we're certainly not having conversations about sex. And so I'm interested in what your sex education looked like um,
4: growing up. Seriously, I think I missed the minute at school. <laughs> and, that was and that really was it I mean family planning um, I remember as a young woman and when I was 16 I came across family planning which was fabulous, you know fantastic um, and that was in 1973 Yes. so you know so important but no I mean I think it was It was, um, it just wasn't there. I just didn't. And, you know, like I read, and of course that's how I learned. And it wasn't that my family was uptight or stuffy or anything, but um, it just was how it was. Yeah,
2: yeah. And so I guess if if we were going to look at, like if the NZPC was designing the school sex education curriculum, what would that look like? What would a Catherine Healy <laughs> sex education look
4: like? Gosh, um, I think you know very early on you would be starting. I, you know, as an ex teacher, I should have a better answer than this. But um, you, you would be starting very early on with you know the the proper names of people's parts, body parts, um, you know, um, ideas around relationships. Um, some of the terminology um, around ethical relationships is quite interesting for sex workers to reflect on, so I get a little bit jittery about it, um, in case it gets sidelined as being an unethical relationship. I mean, I guess, um, we've, yeah... Building blocks, you know, you would go on and eventually, you know, age appropriate, um, all sorts of discussions um, so that children are comfortable with who they are and there isn't homophobia or transphobia and um, or whorephobia. And
3: yeah,
4: we, you know, the kids understand polyamory and just you know respect for people
2: yeah i love that so i mean could you do you think that sex work should be part of the curriculum and an understanding of it at
4: least well it's funny you should say that because we've had um every now and again um young people pop up working on assignments usually um when they're around 16 or 17 because we um we get these emails that come out of schools and we say look we can't um, talk to you directly without endorsement, you know, this is our code of conduct, really, endorsement from a teacher or a parent, um, and that, you know, that there are certainly schools that are supportive of students mm. looking at the issues that sex workers face in a, in a framework, usually to do with the law and um, So on, but you know, that's enormous scope, really. It's not to propagate and say, well, you know, sex work's a wonderful life, it's to talk, you know, about um, different legal responses and ways um, sex workers are. And last year it was fascinating because a school in Wellington in Lower Hutt, St. Oran's, the students there built a play and um, it was fantastic. They captured what had happened in terms of the decriminalisation sex worker rights movement wow. in our and it was really, really moving. And it, you know, it made me cry. I just looked at this wonderful play, and it was about seven minutes long and very intense. And it was just brilliantly performed and carried out and written by the students.
2: So some of that work is actually happening in schools. That's really amazing to hear.
4: Yes, yes.
2: You said said before um, not to say that sex work is a wonderful life, but I wonder, do you believe that sex work can be a wonderful life?
4: Oh, yeah. Um, (laughs) Just um, as somebody said, you know, to me, like we always chat, you know, they they said, oh, you know, it's it's kind of interesting because you've got to you've got to either say oh it's a great job or it's it's awful and there's no middle ground mm. and somebody might say look I've had a great day today or I've had a shit day and immediately like if you say you've had a shit day people imagine you know the worst has happened um they don't imagine it's it's you saying it because you've seen no clients and you've made no money so it's kind of like People aren't allowed those nuanced spaces in between. They're not allowed to say, Oh, it's, you know, it's um toe harm. <laughs> it's either got a super hooker, fabulous, Julia Roberts, pretty woman, Richard Gere. Or Is, it's yeah. the other the other end of um you know, misery.
2: Is sex work just as boring as a as your um everyday office job?
4: Oh, I think so sometimes. <laughs> And sometimes it's it's fabulously um, engaging, you know. It's it's oh my god, this is going to be a long session. <laughs> and then, and then it's like you know it could be other things as well. It could be wow, that was really yeah
2: right <laughs> right oh amazing. I'm interested too because I know that the can you know things have changed quite radically um, with the Me Too era in the last few years. And I'm interested in how that might have impacted, because I know the word consent in my lifetime has floated to the surface only in the last few years as being really even an idea that we should be paying attention to. Has consent always existed in the sex work space? Or has that shifted? How has it impacted?
4: Another great question. And, I mean, we didn't have the word consent, but the practice has has been very pronounced, you know, and I'm reflecting on... um, you know, the time when I began and what I hear now, um, and, you know, like the the definite demarcations between what people agree to. Sex workers have always been um, fantastically uh, charged um, in that space and managed, you know, a lot of situations, um, so, you know, really competently. So, at, you know, I'd say at top of the class in terms of consent, And I've, you know, interestingly too, I think courtrooms have have moved along as well because, um, you know, when you get a case into a courtroom, you've got to have a lot of backing behind it. You know, there's got to be a belief that there's a reasonable chance um, something can happen, you know. Um, So I've sat. Once, Well, I sat once with a sex worker who was told off. um, Told, really, that she'd agreed to some stuff, but um, that was a bit too out there. This was prior to the law change. And it would be very hard to convince a jury that she hadn't agreed to the particular act that she disagreed with, that she didn't, you know. So, therefore, the case couldn't go to trial because it stretched credibility. To to today, knowing that most recently there was a court case in the last couple of years where a sex worker had agreed to quite um, full-on activities, and but not to the extent. Um, and so the jury, I think, or the judge, um, said, no, that's just unacceptable, and prosecuted the the client you know like she had been in talk about strangulation i think and some of the acts that she had agreed to faux strangulation or you know low pressure but not um to the extent he took it so you know that's that's kind of um a good sign that the consent debate is reaching into you know all sorts of spaces really yeah. lots to do lots to do but
3: mm. um,
4: that, i took heart from that court case
2: yeah i'm interested in what you think the the biggest challenges still facing sex workers in new zealand are we say lots do, what do you mean
4: um so the, the the biggest challenges facing sex workers i think you know certainly stigma reigns large Um, but we do have a population of sex workers who are migrant workers who come to this country and um, they may be allowed to have a work permit to work in any other sphere except sex work and of course what do they do they do sex work so you know that's really problematic um, for them if they are deported um, that's you know that can be not a good thing to have on your record that you've been deported for sex work Um, so that's indeed a big challenge Mm. I think you know the um, yeah I I think there are still some outstanding things there are bylaws that sit around the country where we look at um, city councils that have zoned in a hostile way towards home based sex work in particular so A lot of sex workers like to manage their own sex work and work from their own home. Um, In some parts of the country, that can be problematic um, because you'll be working in breach of a bylaw. And obviously, right now, COVID-19, nobody is allowed to be involved in contact sex work, and that is a challenge unprecedented. Um, this, This is absolutely... Um, something beyond what we ever imagined and we suspect that's going to continue for some time that's going to be tremendously challenging
2: You you mentioned before about um, uh, people who are working online uh, and I'm interested in whether NZPC covers people who work in the porn industry adult um, performers or entertainers
4: We do We do, and it's been interesting because it's it's kind of like a new wave of people now talking about ways in which they can make money um, from their sex work um, beyond contact. So people are inventing um, peep shows and (laughs) fun in that regard, and um, setting up. But um, yes, um, we we do we have. but not, not a great deal of, um, there aren't a great number of sex workers who have been involved in porn. Um,
2: and, your, and your choice around not changing the name I find really interesting because I know we talked about it right at the beginning of the conversation around um, prostitute versus sex worker. Um, and we didn't actually delve into why prostitute is a kind of bad word now. Um, and why you've decided to hold on to it. I'm kind of interested in that
4: tension. Well, we kind of float, you know, the New Zealand Sex Workers Collective as well. So if you ring the answer phone to the national office, it's got that going. Um, I guess anywhere that stigmatizes anyone who has anything to do with sex work is a, it, it's not, um, it's not, you know, we don't want to reinforce that stigma. Um, mm. But sex work is the better word because it it actually captures. Um, I mean, we have debates about changing the name and so on, but I think think there's still some sort of attachment to it simply because it needs to perhaps be reclaimed. It's been so stigmatized, um, used in such a a manner to shame people, um, in particular women. I, you know, I just feel a bit bloody-minded on it. You know, we need to steer down stigma.
3: Yeah.
4: And I, I do remember hearing someone say something like, if I call myself a whore, what else can you call me? And that's, you know, that's quite, you know, something to reflect on. It's those words that people use to really shame um, women in particular. Mm. and I think we need to take the power away from those words
2: mm. Mm. Interesting, so it's like sort of claiming like the slut walk or yeah. you know, claiming back witch or you know all of those yeah. conversations yeah. Well, sure. I think it's a century
4: away though I think we've got, you know, and sex work is a very good word It's a, um, I met Carol Lee Scarlet Harlot who was the inventor of the word sex work and certainly it's you know it's adopted widely um the word prostitute is certainly frowned on by the sex worker rights movement although a lot of the older groups like ours and um the english and sex worker groups um different parts of the world that have been going for some time still have the word in their name so
3: um
4: it's um interesting
2: yeah, I'm interested too. I guess because what we're talking about here is the kind of um, mythology that surrounds sex work. What are some of the common myths that come up of, that people might have around sex work? That you, you know, since we've got you here, what would you like to dispel?
4: <laughs> Thank you. Um, I think um, you know, there's, there's. It's funny. I I was having conversation with a friend who was like well what you know what was your trauma did you have a trauma and that um you know that which is why you became a sex worker and um and i think that's one of the myths too that you know for sure some people may have trauma and others may not Mm. and there's this idea of um you know that Everyone is suffering from post traumatic stress um, disorder. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, that's used by the people who we would call the abolitionist um, brigade, who um, really talk down to sex workers, talk about them, yeah. um, you know, are really quite hostile to, towards the idea that. Um, particularly women can have agency in this context um, and see it as a failure and you know a symptom of the patriarchy, etc, and can't imagine um, how anyone could not have post-traumatic stress disorder. So you know some of those um, myths are quite um, compelling, you know if, if audiences hear this long list of the, all the horror that's um, meant to occur, and can occur actually, you know, not to say that it can't, but it's quite compelling. They think, oh my goodness, that's what sex work is like. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is irritating. All kinds of um, people, of course, are sex workers, and the, the um, evidence is quite strong that it's not safe for sex workers to come out because of the, the stigma um, and the public perception. So we're kind of in this double bind, where it's, um, you know, if more people were able to talk about it, if more people were able to hear um, what sex workers are saying, then perhaps, you know, we could address the stigma, perhaps um, those common myths. Um, mm. You know, that, that the other myth too is that Um, The people who manage the places, um, you know, that sex workers are forced um, very often, that the majority of sex workers are forced into sex work at a young age. That's not true. It's simply not um, true at all. And, you know, there's strong evidence in this country to support that. Mm,
2: What age do people enter the sex work industry in New Zealand?
4: Um, Between the ages, in the main of 20 and 30. Um the, that's the biggest population. For street-based sex workers, um the research has shown that generally they are I, I think about fifty percent were under the age of eighteen. So that that is true for that um population. Yep. That population is a smallish part of um sex work. Mm. Um so yeah. Some, mm.
2: Mm, it's really, I mean, I, I can hear you talking about the rescue complex, which is quite common, isn't it? <laughs> common, isn't it? Like, oh, they need, you know, those sex workers need to be saved from themselves um, as much as their pimps or, or whatever that idea is. Um,
3: yeah.
2: I guess I, maybe this is a, a silly question, but I'm I'm kind of interested because I suppose a lot of people listening to this might never have met a sex worker. And so I wonder if you have advice for the average person who comes across a sex worker. What's your advice for um, for them? <laughs>
4: yes, it's interesting. It's um, it's it's funny because you can be in a room full of people, and they might say, and "How's work?" But to the sex worker, they probably would want to ask, but wouldn't want to. Mm. Um, say so first so it's quite it's quite awkward go at the pace of the sex worker I guess (laughs) Um, it's um, questions that aren't polite um, aren't polite generally I mean you know like when I meet someone and they might you know a couple of questions that happens quite quickly are hello who are you of course, as a sex worker, sometimes you have a false um, persona,
3: mm-hmm.
4: um, so you think, "Oh God, who am I?" Um, <laughs> or um, what do you do? And of course, you, you take a gamble on that too. Should I say I'm a sex worker, or should should I not? You know, because if you say that, it might bring to a halt any conversation, and mm-hmm. you know, th- it's tricky,
3: mm-hmm. or it
4: might bring out judgment so it's quite quite worrying um, what would I say to a person who meets a sex worker, I'd say you've probably met heaps of them but you've not been aware of it um, for a start um, and you know, I know for sure I still think no way that person's not a sex worker, no way so if I'm thinking that after 33 years of dealing day in day out with sex workers and I still get pulled up with my own prejudices yeah um goodness knows for the person who would say oh no 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 I don't know any I'd say yes you do (laughs) you're moving amongst sex workers all the time without a doubt
2: so I guess I I mean I'm interested in um in queer rights and in LGBT safety personally and um and I guess I, a big question for me always, or a, a good um, offering that I try and give is to try and give people a sense of what would make the queer community feel safe enough to come out or to, um, or to be themselves. Um, so I guess I, would, I wanna ask the same question to you. What can the non-sex working community do to make sex workers feel safe enough to come out Feel seen and be and be okay. What, what might that look like?
4: Um, yes, I guess you have to start small, mm. um, and you know those conversations that you have um, to not negate um, or to make comments. You know, like if you there's so much negativity. Television programs, the sex worker always is murdered. You know, you can start to signal attitudes by sharing positive comments um, Mm -hmm. and not making assumptions, you know, like with children when you're you're talking and you don't make assumptions about heteronormative stuff, you know. Same with sex worker stuff. You know, you wouldn't write it off as an occupation Mm -hmm. um, and Mm -hmm. say, oh, well, you know, that person must be really sad or... Mm. Um, mad or bad or something you know comments like that people pick up um, Mm. and you know like I I know you know I was talking to a mum who's on a school board and she was like oh gosh you know I don't want to be closeted about my Mm. sex work involvement you know I want to be able to share it and we're all sort of like well just be a bit circumspect (laughs) you know not everyone's going to be there to be supportive of that history remember yeah. and it's a horrible thing to have to say mm. um, but yeah I think um, yeah um, well the teacher that facilitated the students to do the play on um, sex work history was you know just just neat things like that and audiences that are supportive and mm. um, you can use a lot of drama and um, literature and film to signal whether you're positive or not
2: i mean i'm sure, certainly sure that you're cuz you are so visible in that community and especially now you know you've been given these queens honors and um and so i mean certainly you standing up and saying i've done sex work i think sex workers deserve rights and treatment as real human beings um that must do a lot for the visibility of the cause. I wonder, I, I guess I want to ask, you know, you're talking about you, you're never going to give up sex work, the sex worker rights work, um, but you're certainly relaxing the rest of your work life. I, I wonder what, looking back on your career, what
4: you're, what you're proudest of, um, personally. I think I'm very proud. Um, we have this organisation and we pushed um, as an organisation To um, have sex work recognised and Mm. sex worker rights um, held up and enshrined in the law, Mm. I think I'm immensely proud of that. That we did it, you know, we did it together. We did it, you know, all parts of our community. Um, GBLTIQ played a huge role there. Um, In fact, you know, like a really key key role. Um, Georgina Byers' speech in the Parliament. Um, Tim Barnett, um, the Labour MP and out gay man, uh, supported the bill, sponsored that bill through the Parliament. You know, those are those are just magic memories, really. Um, the night the law changed. Yeah. What was that feeling for you? Because were you in the
2: House at the time?
4: Yeah. Yes. 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 Yeah. Um, there had been three readings, and at one point, you know, an unsupportive member of parliament had looked at me and pointed and said, "That is the face of prostitution." <laughs> as if I was a, you know, and another headline had captured something about the cancer of society. You know, we were described as being the cancer of society, and um, we had to win. We had to get that through and you know not every sex worker got through that night the migrant sex worker population Um, there had been a clause introduced so that you know migrants weren't able to come to this country and be sex workers like they could in any other occupation so there's more to do
2: thank you so much for all of your time I know that we've gone terribly over what i said we would but <laughs> you've been so exciting and interesting to to talk to i can hear something being chopped in the background so i'm assuming that's your lunch of some description <laughs> so i don't want to keep you too much longer i guess um it's important to to put out to say to anybody who is in sex work that they can always come to the nzpc is that right
4: yes and we we are the tamest bunch so you must contact us um you know like a, by by any, any means you like, and um, we we will be there um, to see you pretty much, um, you know, within the moment. Or so don't um, sit in a you know a spot of isolation, especially um, mm. we are in challenging times, and know that you're not alone. Mm.
2: Mm. Look, I don't want to take any more of your very precious time, but Catherine Healy, you've been an absolute delight to talk to and thank you so much for your time. I've learned so much speaking to you and I'm sure everybody who listens will learn a lot more and the hope is that that destigmatization can start this conversation and, and, and kind of ripple out so that we've got all kinds of, all manner of advocates and allies um, among us.
4: Cheers, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.
2: Enjoy your lunch, Catherine. See you later. Boom. Hope you enjoyed that podcast. What a delicious conversation. So Um, delicious.
0: (laughs) Her lunch sounded good too.
2: (laughs) If you, if you hearing it chopped in the background, if you, um, If you are interested in, uh, if you're already in the sex work industry and you don't know about what NZPC can deliver or you're interested in talking to someone about sex work or you're just kind of interested in general, definitely go to www.nzpc.org.nz. They're incredible people that work there and they are there specifically for those conversations um, to eradicate shame and to really empower sex workers across New Zealand. So yeah, dive in. Uh, and I guess it's important to note too that, hey, we are, this is only our first series. I mean, isn't it crazy that this is only our first series and we got Dan Catherine Healy on? <laughs> I know. <laughs>
0: Such a trusting individual. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but um, yeah, this is only our first series of these podcasts. So um, we are absolutely. Uh, delighted by some of the interviews we've got available and we really recommend that you check out our other episodes around Asians and sex around ending HIV around indigenous gender and sexuality around um uh god raising your kids non-binary there's so many treats in there so go and check out our other um uber sexy guests but we'd also love to hear from you the audience we want to know what you loved what you hated Maybe tell Tim what you hated, not me. Um, (laughs) I can take it. Some feedback, some ideas. You know, the topics you want covered and the people that if you can think of someone that you think we absolutely should be talking to, we'd love to hear that. So, um, yeah, send us anything at all to hello at sexandspace.com. We want to include that feedback in upcoming episodes. And you can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram, as always, at sexandspace.com. That's sexinspace, D-O-T-C-O-M.
0: That is right. Uh, If you enjoyed this podcast or any of the other podcasts, Uh, and you had anything uh, in terms of a swipe or a click that you uh, felt like uh, donating to us, uh, then you can leave us a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts or um, anywhere else that uh, will let you leave a review. Um, I think that uh, there are other podcast apps available. Um, Yeah, they really, really help. And um, definitely uh, be shouting some of those out on future episodes. A huge thank you, as always, to all our guests. Um, I would say the good folks at Zoom um, and the team at String Theory uh, to Andrew, Tanya, Brandon, David and Richard for their amazing voices. Thank you to my amazing co-host, Jess Holly-Bates. Anytime. Anytime. And thank you to you for making it all the way to the end. Join us next week for more. Bye.
1: If you found some of this material a little challenging, keep coming back and we'll make it really challenging.